Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, a brand new feature. It's the A to Z of Snooker. I have gathered with me Alan McManus, Phil Yates and Neil Folds. And we're going to go through the alphabet um, and talk about various stories from the snooker world. So we start, unsurprisingly, with A. And A is for Alex, as in the great Alex Higgins. We'll start with you, Neil, because your breakthrough, really, was, was playing him and beating him at the Crucible. Yeah, I mean, it has been mentioned a lot. But, yeah, that was my big breakthrough. It was in my first season as a pro... Uh, won three qualifiers, and it just so happened. I think you knew who you was going to play back then. There was no random draw. I think I knew that from the start of the, um, the qualifiers that my seeded player was Alex Higgins, and of course, a big deal for me. I did know him a little bit through my dad, who had been playing. You know, he'd been around on the tour and everything. It was a big, big day for me. You know, I think um, I led. I either led or trailed five four overnight, and it finished in the morning, and I won ten nine. And look, I don't think it was. I don't think he played it at his best, and I know that he was fiddling about with his cue and all that. But you know, he was still a great player at the time, and and it made um, big news for me. And I think I might have said this to, on this before, but Alex commentated that year as well after that for a few matches. Yeah. And if I, sorry if I repeat it, I still remember my next match. I was playing Doug Mountjoy, and Alex was in the commentary box and looking up, and he was smoking in the commentary box, and it was just a blue blue haze, you know, in there. It was almost like. Um, some of them tales from the crypt in there, you know. <laughs> How he's allowed to, to, I don't know who he was working with, but I think the other person was a non-smoker, but they had to uh, yeah. t- basically just passively smoke. But yeah. um, um, that, that was a big deal for me, clearly, you know. The, the, and he was good in defeat, actually, you know. And I know he got a lot of stick, and he was good in defeat. He got his own back a couple of other times, they beat me. I got a lot of, a lot of exhibition work out of playing him as well, uh, quite a few, and I'm, I think, I don't think I was on the same money as him. And, uh, <laughs> I think I signed a few more autographs than he did all, all the same. But yeah, yeah um, good memories actually of, of those days. Phil, what, what put into context his importance to snooker? Well, in the 70s, Ray Reardon won six world titles, John Spencer won three, but neither of them had the impact on snooker that Alex Higgins did. I think he laid the foundation for the current tour. He was so popular. Obviously, Jimmy White and then Ronnie O'Sullivan have carried on his legacy. But you've got to remember just what a star he was and the controversies he created, the news uh, he generated, I think put Snooker not just on the back pages but on the front pages as well and I think he was the single most impactful player 
in the game's boom in the late 70s when it became a TV sport. I, I think that's his, his greatest achievement, rather than the, the two world titles, what he actually did for the game as a whole. Did you play him, Alan? Yeah, I played him at, at least twice. I remember playing him my best of nine, and I, I played him in the World Championship <coughs> in 92. I've, again, like Neil, I've spoken about this before. And um, So you stopped but, him winning it 10 years on again? With the 10-year cycle <laughs> thing, <laughs> aye. You. So, he, he, you know, I, I thought I was going to get a right old uh, mouthful from him, but... Um, I remember that I was a little intimidated. It was nice. I'd been a pro about a couple of years, and uh, you know it was Alex. And I think around about that time, actually, was the time he played Stephen in the UK at the Guild Hall and where we were. Uh, so he'd played Stephen maybe months before, and it was I'm the Devil and all that. Yeah. So I thought I might be <clears throat> Scottish and quite young. I'll maybe get some treatment, but it actually was fine. But it, what struck me when I played him was. His safety game, it really was outstanding. His scoring was was completely gone. He wasn't scoring at all, but you could see the talent. Um, quick also, the first time I ever seen him actually was the the, which was called the the Lang Supreme Scottish Masters at the time. I think it was around eighty six or seven, but it was it was the September weekend roughly when the Scottish Masters. And uh, as Neil would would know all about we. Me and my mate, we went to watch it. It was evening session. He played Jimmy because we watched the Air Gold Cup, the Cavalry Challenge, right. in the afternoon. Anyway, and uh, you know you remember silly things like that. And we went and watched him. It was the first match after his six-month ban from I believe he head but was it Paul Hatherall or Tour director of the UK Championship, yeah, or, yeah, or yeah. call it whoever yeah. it was. Anyway, and it, uh, Jimmy won the match, but um, Alex, I think John Williams was refereeing and Alex got a bit of a set to during the match with John Williams unsurprising and um, that was that but one of the Glasgow punters shouted out when he was arguing with John Williams shouted stick your head in them Alex and, the, <laughs> and the, the, the crowd were like that's true you know I was there with my pal Robert Miller and uh, so yeah I got a few memories but not you know I, I only knew him for a few years but he and Jimmy played in, in the Hofmeister doubles together didn't they yes. Alex and Jimmy and they played my dad and George Scott who uh, I mean my dad and George you know, to be fair they were solid old pros but they weren't really they weren't going to trouble those two and they couldn't be more different in, in character either <laughs> and it was at Derngate in Northampton and there was it was full I mean it was full and my dad says to this day he's petrified of it all and uh, he, he, you know, the most two flamboyant players probably the, the game has ever seen, you know. And dear old George and my dad, they, they turned up and, and they said, Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to beat them? And George said, I tell you what, you play the safety and I'll play the safety. <laughs> and that was the plan. They lost. <laughs> I, we'll look good while we're losing. <laughs> one, one thing about that doubles, one year. Alex's doubles partner was Eddie Charlton. Mm. Now that's like Jacob Rees Mogg partner up with Trotsky. <laughs> I mean, you talk about contrasts. Yes. I mean, we, nobody could work out how they, how they got together. Eddie Charlton and Alex again. Of course, famously, Phil, you hid from him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm just completely cowardly in those kind of situations. What happened was we were at the the qualifiers at Blackpool and it was this endless churning out of snooker results. And it was right at the end of Higgins' career and he'd lost every single day and he was losing to people who'd gotten their right to be in the same room as him, you know, to, to paraphrase a Stephen Hendry quote. And uh, he was getting increasingly irascible and, and, and vile, basically. Anyway, um, we'd had the story um, earlier in the day. Somebody had made a 147 when it wasn't quite as, uh, as prevalent as, as it is now, that kind of break. And so we didn't really need to speak to him. He'd lost to somebody who was well down the rankings and 
uh, Ann Yates, who was the tournament director at the time, said, um, well, do you want us to beat Alex? And myself and Trevor Baxter were up there said, well, no, definitely not. We've got the story. We don't expect it. And she said, okay, but you know, he, he, he might he might want to he might want to come and, and speak to you. So we thought, well, what do we do? So Trevor had this good idea that we went and hid in the, the adjoining room from the press room. So, of course, we heard him come in. Where are they? Where are they? <laughs> and uh, so we're like, we're, we're like quiet as a mess in this, in this other room, you know, praying he doesn't. And, and, and we heard him say, come out, come out, wherever you are. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't. Because <laughs> yeah. we went, Neil, last year in Belfast yeah. to, the, to the pub where he lived opposite and the, the, the lovely mural on the, on the side Beautiful. of the, the street. I mean, he is remembered in those parts, isn't he? He really is. And uh, we got to the pub. It was quite early on the Sunday morning mm. in Belfast. about might have been 10 o'clock yeah. and I thought well this pub's not even open clearly and it is open yeah. they'd been in there I think a good while it might have been dare I say some form of lock-in going on but they were in there <laughs> drinking lively bunch a good bunch yeah. and um, they liked Jimmy White who was with us didn't they they'd yeah. gone great with him and uh, Jimmy, Jimmy we sent uh, Jimmy in first we sent him in first <laughs> made, made his piece yeah. and uh, they were a really good bunch actually and uh, you know um, they're great memories and like you said that mural is quite something else so I'm pleased to want to see that it's brilliant yeah yeah okay We'll move on to B. Now, B is for billiards because, of course, snooker uh, was invented from various other sports. And I remember Rex Williams telling me once, he said, there's no such thing as a snooker table. So they're all billiards tables. Have you ever played billiards, Alan? It seems to be your sort of game in some ways. I, I, I've played it. Yeah. Or, uh, probably wrong to say I've played it. I've tried it. Mm. You know, um, We're talking English billiards here. I know there's lots, lots of different... I could probably make yeah. 100, you know, but I, I would guess in my life I've played it about 10 times, maybe. Um, but there was a couple of guys in Scotland who were decent. Um, there was a guy called Davis Sneddon yeah. who was, I think he was about 25 times Scottish champion. Yeah, Davis Sneddon, who was a good snooker player as well. And um, <coughs> But but no, I never played in a, a, a tournament, but it was a game I enjoyed. Um, I remember I played actually Geet Sethi oh. in, in the practice room at the Guildhall. And uh, really lovely guy as well, we'll yeah. probably all know him. And, um, I, I actually, I think it, it was it was a time, and you'll remember there was a tournament on mm. a billiard tournament. So I remember David Cosier was playing, and he was At like venue, really yeah. he was yeah. like really attacking. He was almost like Alex Higgins, the way you know played adventurous shots. He was good to watch, which is strange to say about billiards. But um, I remember playing Geet, and basically I wanted to see how he did it, and it was just unbelievable. I thought you see it up close on good tables, good cloths, and little. It's not just cannons. Mm. It's they push the they, they they make like a half ball cannon to push it somewhere and incredible it really is a great skill but it's not something that a snooker player should play because it destroys your cue. Yeah. I played a bit and we because I was always told you should play. My old manager Ron Gross used to say you should play a bit of billiards. It's good for your game and I never really found that. And like you say, I think it didn't help your potting. But I did make a, a couple of two or three centuries, you know, at it. But he said, that's not billiards, you're playing snilliards. Which <laughs> yeah. obviously is just potting the red yeah. a few times, the odd cannon, the odd enough, and it's generally. Three, three reds and then. And then up the yeah. table, the odd little bit of stuff that isn't that. Um, I, I actually played Michael Ferreira at snooker, and he was obviously a leading billiard player, the Indian. Um, and he was quite a good snooker player. I mean, I played him in the Isle of Wight in the, um, the, the big festival they had down there. And, and he was really, really good snooker player around the, you know, the, say around the blacks, but unsurprisingly. I think one frame he made 10 or 11 red blacks, thought he was going to make a maximum, but he didn't have anything else, you know, but, um, you know, obviously billiards was his game. I'd like to know whether Mike Russell, who's obviously a wonderful mm. player, 
what the sort of standard he is at snooker, you know, because of his billiards, he's absolutely outstanding, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, Geet Sethi made a one four seven, I think, didn't he? Yeah, he was a fine player. Geet, I think the one thing you have to say about billiards is that it produced the most dominant person in the history of Q sports: pool, billiards, carom, snooker. The most dominant player in all of those was Walter Lindrum. I mean, he wasn't just dominant. This guy was an absolute savant on the table. He was like Babe Ruth baseball or you know these kind of figures who are just transcend the sport for how good they are scarily good I think the other great story about billiards is how it sort of um, came to, to be really and how, it, how snooker came to sort of take over and get into the consciousness John Roberts was the great champion uh, in the, the late 19th century and he went over to India and where snooker had been sort of developed and he realised a massive commercial opportunity because he used to sell sets of billiard balls, which were three balls, weren't they? Obviously, four at the most, I suppose, if you've got a replacement wise. And he saw this new game, Snooker, and he's got 22 balls, he's thinking, cashed in here, you know, five times the income. And, and that's how it sort of seeped back in uh, to, to Britain. Billiards was the, the dominant sport, really, until what would you say Dave early 40s maybe late 40s yeah and the problem I suppose and Barry Hearn summed it up as he, as he often does in, in, his, in his way when he was asked why he doesn't take it on TV because TV obviously is the oxygen of sport now he said not enough balls it's almost too intricate a game yes for TV viewers I remember that was at the Blue Arrow Masters mm. does that you, yes, you got yes. well, yeah. that, that was it Miserat came over and yeah. played I know he was a pool guy but I guess it was Bullion Bullion yeah. there was also a, or was that a pill and if you look yeah. at Roger Lees uh, would no doubt the, the great historian of the game he, he would um, remember there was a series I think it was on ITV where they had um, a billiards tournament and I, I, I've looked on YouTube and I found it there was um, Ray Reardon playing Alex Higgins and, and, yes. and all of that there was a series yeah. they weren't and Rex Williams was in there obviously was a leading player but it was kind of strange seeing so Alex Higgins going back to him you know playing billiards so but they weren't they didn't master the game but it was quite interesting they tried it on TV mm. I guess it never really caught on you know in the same yeah, way yeah, yeah, yeah. well I mean a close match in billiards if it's over any meaningful distance a close match is like 100 points between the, the two players so on TV it never seemed like the equivalent of a pink or a black ball finish because someone was always well ahead I mean to get a, a three or a five point six point game that's like once in a once in ten years it's funny you mentioned Walter Lindrum because someone a big pal of mine actually put something on the internet a couple of days ago and it was Walter Lind- it was footage of Walter Lindrum playing billiards and the, the, me being a you know I'm a big fan of just how balls react for whatever reason you know when they play the nursery cannons, the the thing that I ama- that not amazes me because I, I I can understand it to a degree, but how they judge a double kiss off the first ball, mm. you know when it's yes. on the cushion, they they judge the double kiss yes. like but I, I like seeing that you know yes. it's, it's a little feel thing, and I watched them play maybe thirty forty shots and it was as you say like a savant or something yes, he yeah, just yeah. he just and up round he went round the table brilliant skillful game but I think skillful when game, you yeah. see a bit of uh, a tip tapping around John Virgo. Uh, great commentator he always says uh, this is why billiards never really caught on that's what he says when someone's rolling into the bunch or playing little yeah. tip taps yeah, yeah, so that's yeah, how he yeah, sees yeah, it yeah. Yeah. some facts about billiards Mary Queen of Scots played billiards and when she died they wrapped her in, a clo- in the cloth from a table mm. uh, I've heard yeah, you say that before yeah, yeah, yeah. so she went for a nap <laughs> oh dear, dear. Wow, I have to edit that out. Um, the, the first man to be uh, charged under fingerprint evidence stole billiard balls in Britain. That's a fact. Harry Roberts, his name was. And it's also mentioned, billiards is mentioned in a Shakespeare play and a kink song. The Shakespeare play is Anthony and Cleopatra, and the kink song is the Village Green Preservation Society. It's one of the things they want to preserve about traditions. 
didn't know any of that. So there you You didn't know any of that. No, yeah, no, no, no. Looking open mouth for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, yeah. We'll move on after that. Uh, after that, to C can only be for Crucible. Um, Neil and Alan, obviously, you both played there, and Phil and I have been there many times, uh, reporting and commentating. Um, what, I mean, it's the thing everyone always asks: Why is it special? Obviously, the World Championships held there, so that makes it special. But it's not just that, is it? No, it's. It, it, I guess as a kid, Neil will be the same, you know, especially having his dad who was a professional. So, probably from a young age, Neil, you would have wanted to be a person. Yeah, I went there first in '79 actually, right. uh, because we were chewing on John Virgo, who was based in London, um, the year that uh, the Griff won. And so I'd been there before, played there. But all I'll say is, and I bet you could say this, Alan, you've got good and bad memories. My good oh, was probably right. the Alex Higgins and getting to the semi-final. Lots but the worst, yeah. the worst I had was I was playing Wayne Jones and I had to win the match to send the top 16. I trailed 3-1 and in the dressing room in the interval I put my fist through the, the window, smashed the window. Um, glass went down and could have killed somebody downstairs. It's too late to charge you for this. It was a little bit too late. <laughs> and I said, uh, at the time, I did say, um, oh, I'd, I'd certainly lent on the curtain and it went, but actually I did it deliberately. And uh, obviously, it just goes to show you 3 1 down in the best of 19 against someone you expected to beat. And then all the, you know, you look back now, why, why did I do that? I, mean, I could have easily won that match if I'd, my head had been straight, lost it out of the 16. So that's my worst memory of the cruise. Well, that's the kind of place it is. Everyone's got good and bad. Even the greats have got some bad memories there, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, I, my first time there was 90, I think, this, the spring of 90. I went to the, because I played the English amateur last 16 or 32 in a place called Frames Plaza in Hansworth, just outside of Sheffield. Um, just along the expressway there, anyway, and and for some reason, we visited the crucible. Me and the big guy Tommy, who used to go down with us, and we didn't get in. And then the following year, I played there, so it was kind of with <laughs> that, you know. We went along. I remember Darren Morgan was playing, and we, I didn't know. See, it's kind of different then when you're an amateur. You don't really know. I didn't know any professionals or any people or any reporters or TV people. So we just rocked up, and no one would know that I was a daft snooker player, you know, and. Uh, I remember trying to, I think it might have been sold out, I don't know what round it was, and we basically would never get in, so we were about turning off, and then I turned pro that summer, and I played there the following year in the spring of 91, so it was kind of weird, and I remember being in, I played Willie Thorne, I remember being in the Crucible, not during the match, but I remember being in, say, a year ago I didn't get in this place, so it was kind of weird, you know, because it kind of happened quickly, but it, as Neil says, a lot of good memories and a lot of bad um, it's going to do that to you, every player in it, regardless, yeah. even Hendry's and whoever, you know. The amazing thing about the Crucible is what it represents and not what it actually is. The bricks and mortar of the place, the facilities backstage, the arena itself being quite small, absolutely nothing special, but the, the vibe around the place and the fact that it's got so much history in a sport which really hasn't got a lot of history, that's what makes it so special. And, when Barry Hearn came into the game as chairman and said, we are not leaving this place, we're staying here forever, I'm, I was over the moon with that because when you've got something to cling on to like that, you, you want to cling on to it. Mm. Um, it it's, it's just phenomenal. And the amazing thing is, I've been there every year now working since 1989, and obviously I went there subsequently, before that as, as a spectator. When you walk into the press seats and you walk down those uh, few stairs there and you walk into the arena for the first time that particular year, you always forget how small it is. It really is tiny. So commercially, it's actually handcuffs for the game because Barry and the guys could make a lot more money 
um, off uh, ticket revenue if they went somewhere else. But if they did, it would be disastrous for me. Yeah, I think objectively it's the wrong venue. It's not big enough. Yes. You could sell out, you know, maybe five times as many. But if you say took it to Wembley Arena, it just, for example, it'd just be completely soulless. It wouldn't yes. have that feel no. about it. And you get it as an audience member as well. It's not just players. Like you're so close, aren't you? And it's the same people in the front row every yeah. year as well. Actually, a, a quick story. We, mm. we were all there this year working and. I, I came across, I went out for a pint, I think, one night, and I was standing <clears throat> in the pub, and a guy came over to me, he was from British Columbia, and, uh, mm. over in Western uh, Canada, and um, I, I, he asked me something about this, and I said, oh, you know, nice, to, I said, are you here to watch a snooker? He was a really lovely guy, it was something to do with the Canadian yeah, Snooker yeah. Association. I met him as well, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go, yeah. and he, he was a lovely guy, and he wasn't, he wasn't looking for a ticket, or lo- but I said to him, you know, oh, yeah, did you get some tickets for some sessions? He said, and he, he didn't say in a way where he wanted one. He said, "Yeah, I had one for last week, and I've got one for." He had like he was there for about ten days or two weeks, and he only had one mm. ticket for one session. Wow. But he was just delighted mm, to yes. be there. So I said, "Look, I've got to try and do so." So the um, the, the big Mark Pearson at Betfred, he was brilliant. I said, "Look, Mark, I met this guy. He's a really nice guy. He's, he's something. You know, he's part of the game at, from Canada. Is there any chance you could get him?" So Mark. Uh, brilliantly got him a ticket for this I think it was the first session of the final and I met the guy outside the doors of the crucible at half past 11 an hour and a half before kick off or something and uh, with an envelope I said look there you go and he was the guy was over the moon yes, yeah. and stories like that are brilliant because yes. it was a genuine thing yes. but that's the thing that you struck us about there Cru- the crucible means something around the world yes it's got this mythology and people know it and they want to go there and as much as players want to play there fans want to actually get a ticket and be, and be inside and experience it well we've been going for years and we still want to go yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think anyone that's got any hope of playing there it's in the future you should probably try and get in there first because it is a strange venue and you might I actually will say this, and I don't want to. Some people, I think, have been slightly underwhelmed by it on their debut. I think, mm. I think John Higgins was, and yeah. one or two others. And it takes a while for you to grow to love the place, perhaps you know. And you only do that with all the good and bad experiences. But sometimes people think, "What is this place?" Mm. You know, I don't think Ding liked it particularly, and now he's been in the final, so it's a one-off. Isn't yeah. It? Well, I tell you, what was weird. I went there to see a play. So obviously, I mean, yeah. it was the nap, so it's a snooker yeah. play. But it's weird going there where the snooker's not on. You don't. You haven't got the TV trucks. You haven't got. You know, big Frank on the on the security desk or any of that <laughs> stuff. The cuttings on the wall. Just weird being there for a theatre, and you realise actually this isn't really a sporting venue, and yet it becomes one every year. It's strange. And how it was found was extraordinary, mm. really. Carol Watterson went there to see a play like you did, Dave, and she thought, well, hold on a minute, this would be a really good place mm. for snooker. Mike Watterson, the original promoter, went, and there was literally just enough room for a couple of tables. I think it was something like four and a half inches tolerance on either side. And so it was just so fortunate that Snooker and the Crucible combined. You're right to mention the Watersons on that because it literally would not have happened but for them, would it, any of it? Yeah. Funny thing, actually, I found a, a cracking old photograph on yeah. um, the internet was a while ago, and the partition was literally like a garden fence. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah. Back in, it was like one of those little, like a, the windbreaker things or yes. something on the Blackpool Beach. It was like that. So it's grown and grown, yes. but um, the tradition's always going to be there. And, of course, nowadays with the prevalence of open plan arenas, there is an argument to say you don't need the partition. I mean, I think players would get in each other's way to a certain extent, but I think logistically it could be done, but I don't think you should do it because, again, it, it just breaks tradition. Something else that Neil will, will well know, um, that the, the punters and, and 
uh, certainly TV viewers, you don't get to see. See when you're sitting in the chairs, there's a gap, isn't there? And you can see the other two guys. Yeah. And so it's not a nice feeling when you're sitting there and the guy's making 70. And you look at sometimes you look over to the guy on the other table and you kind of has a, a resigned look <laughs> on each other's face thinking, yeah. yeah, he's scoring as well and I'm suffering here, you know. So there's all little things going on. And people don't realise either just how close the two players are. Mm. If you're playing somebody you don't like, and let's face it, mm. you know, in life, people done don't like other people. Yeah. It must be very uncomfortable. Absolutely. OK, well, let's move on to D, which is for Davis. Uh, and of course, there's been three world champions, Joe, Fred and Steve. 29 world titles between them, all started with Joe Davis. None of us knew Joe Davis, but obviously he was onto something. He bought the original trophy, which they still present. I've got his autograph. When, um, it must have been early Pontins, um, Joe Davis' autograph. My dad asked me to get it, and he, he gave it to me. I, he, I think he was wanting to watch the game, and I went up when I was a little <laughs> kid, and he, he did it. And uh, yeah, So I, I never obviously saw him play or anything like that, goodness me. But I did meet him, so... Not everyone can say that. He passed away in the 70s, didn't he? Uh, yeah, 78, just after yeah. Fred was in the semis. That's right, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I've seen footage of him. He, he, he was an incredible player, and I still know of people. Um, you know, During his life, Ted Lowe said there was never a better player, but I knew it, an, an elderly Irish chap, actually, from the old snooker club, who still maintained, even when Steve Davis was, uh, was, was coming through, and maybe before Stephen came along, that, that Joe was the greatest player that he'd ever seen by a mile, you know, and I'm sure that he, he was. I'm sure he was a great player. But Fred was a phenomenon as well, wasn't he? I mean, Fred was playing professionally into his 70s. He played Ronnie, I think Ronnie was 16, and Fred was, well, mid-70s. I don't think I've ever met a, a snooker player, an active snooker player, who I've had more conversations with, with than Fred Davis. And I never used to call him Fred, I used to call him Mr Davis. I just couldn't help myself. Just such a nice guy. I mean, this was at the qualifiers at Blackpool, and some of the stories he told... And he really was the quiet assassin, you know, all of this smiling and stuff. <laughs> Don't get confused. He wanted to win every single match, even right towards the end of his career. And I think one of the, Fred's great quotes, he never made a 147. He said, no, he said, you know, he said, I prefer to make a 74 in one frame and a 73 in the next, because that puts you 2-0 up, not 1-0. Yeah, old school. Well, you, you old know, school. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can't argue with that. But mm. I saw him play at the Crucible. I saw him play some tremendous stuff. And he floated the balls around so quietly and... You know, in, in an old-fashioned way, brilliant. Well, he made a century at the cruise, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah. Would he have been against Cuck Stevens? Wasn't he it? was. He was 65. It was 79. Yeah. So he was in yeah. the semis. And, and at the end, the thing I always remember that at the end, the referee applauds. Yeah, Literally, the referee that. applauds. Girl, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was actually there, and it would have been this again, the spring, of, late spring of '90, and uh, when he, he played his last effective yes. match, a guy called Chris Cookson, who we all we all yes. certainly know. Um, from Leeds wasn't he Chris Cookson he, he beat uh, Fred Davis in the, the pro ticket playoffs I think he beat him 10-1 from memory yes. he was always going to win and uh, I remember Fred coming out into the practice area there was about 8, 7, 8 tables and everyone kind of stopped and applauded him yes. and he, he, let's face it he was a he was an older guy you know yeah, by yeah, then he was, a, he was a, a ripe old age you know but I never got a chance to speak to him but I, I certainly seen him was in the same room a couple of times and uh, it, was, it was good to have seen him. One of the great stories linking Fred and Joe happened uh, in a world championship. Basically, when Fred first turned professional, he, he was short sighted and he didn't really want to tell anybody. And he, he played this match against a Welsh guy called uh, Bill Withers. And Bill Withers beat, beat Fred, and Joe was absolutely disgusting. You know, the, the Davis name has been besmirched. You know, how can you lose this? Anyway, the next year, has luck would have it. Um, <laughs> Joe drew Bill Withers in the first round 
course, back in those days, it was very formal. Bill was WA with us. And Joe beat him 37 1. <laughs> Take that. Yeah, not, not a lovely day. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 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 I can link uh, Fred and Steve because I saw, I saw them play each other at the World Masters in Birmingham. And obviously, Fred was very much, you know, at the end of his career then, and Steve was, was, was sort of still very much king. Uh, but it was kind of nice to see the two eras bridged. I mean, we could do a whole podcast, obviously, on Steve. But uh, from a player's perspective, like Alan, what, what did Steve Davis mean to you sort of growing up? A lot. I mean, I remember the if I final, we all do, sure. Uh, sitting in the house, I was 14, um, didn't have massive aspirations of being a player then, but I was a massive, I was a Davis fan, I played in a club called the Steve Davis Snooker Club, which he opened, um, I remember him coming up, more, although I wasn't at the opening night, but it was like, a, when you think about it, he was a megastar, of, of, in sporting, um, UK terms anyway, and I was a massive fan, I mean, when I got to turn pro, and I think the first time I would have seen him would have been in the Nordbreak. They had a couple of qualifiers where the top 16 came in, Dubai and maybe Thailand, something like that. And uh, my first ranking final, actually, which I think was 92, maybe, I played Steve. And it was a, I think it was the first time I played him. And I could not believe how good he was. He was awesome. He beat me 9-3 and I played out my socks. I played brilliant. And I, and I was I was over the moon the way I played. And he just was, he was too good. Simple. And... Uh, and such a good guy as well. I, you know, I'm not, not in social circles. I'm not that much, but he's a real good guy, as we all know. And, and moved on now, and he's kind of got a completely different life, yeah. which is a good thing, isn't it? I think he, you know. Well, he set standards, didn't he? Set standards on the table, and he also set standards off the table in terms of how to be professional. Yeah. Mm. Commands a lot of respect. I mean, I met him actually at the very beginning. I, I would say before Barry even knew him, uh, my dad again was playing uh, in the thing called the Double Diamond at Pairs it, with a guy called Roger Brown, who was a very good player from London. And it was at Plumstead Working Men's Club with Steve and somebody else. I can't think of the guy he was partnering. And that was before he'd done anything at the game. And, and they'd beaten Steve and this guy on their own table, my dad and, and Roger Brown. And a few months later, he turned up for the British Under-9 London Home County section. And I'll never forget, there were 17 players. It was played at Rongelos Club in Neeson. 17 players in it. So there was one preliminary round. And that was Tony Mio and Steve Davis were drawn against each other. And everyone thought, well, Tony Mio, this, you know, he's just fantastic. And he was a wonderful player. He's going to beat Steve. Oh, we saw that guy, Steve Davis. Yeah, really, nothing. And Steve beat him comfortably and won the whole thing. And that was the beginning of it. And then you realise from those few months when I saw him, he was a, just an unbelievably good player. This was before the Lucania era when he met Barry. So he goes, goes right back and he improved rapidly. And he's always been a great guy from day one. Mm. And that's the thing, you know, we talked about Alex Higgins earlier, the maverick, you know, the wild card. But on the other side, you need a Davis figure, yeah. don't you? Well, he's a legend, isn't he? I mean, to be respected, Phil, completely, would you say? Fantastic. Well, Higgins was the anti-ambassador and he was the perfect ambassador. Yeah. We've had subsequent players like him, uh, you know, uh, down the years. I mean, Ken Doherty springs to mind, brilliant, you know. But he was the first guy who really gave snooker the veneer of respectability that it so badly needed. We always say in snooker we shouldn't compare eras, and really you shouldn't because it's, it's unfair. But I think if Steve Davis was producing his form of the 80s now, he'd absolutely definitely be inside oh, the top 16. Maybe even inside the top 10. I, and that's the best compliment I think you can give him. Now that we're talking about it, see when I think, I, you think when he came through, they won the UK in 80 and then the, the world in 81, I think something like that. But as, as a fan of the game, I, I wonder actually now how he developed his technique, because his technique was so, so good. But, but he didn't have 
people before. He didn't have John Higgins to model on or mm. Neil Robertson to model on. He didn't have any of that. So he actually did not maybe discovered it. I don't know if his dad Bill might have had something to do with that. I know he coached him. But to actually develop the technique that he had through the, the 80s and, and most of the 90s was amazing. But as a snooker fan right. looking at it, because, like I say, there was nothing to go on. So he had to actually invent himself. Um, from a, from from nothing to go on, as I say, you know, and amazing. From, and amazing from a viewership point. point of view, if you look at all of the individual sports, when they thrive, it's when there's a dominant figure because people tune in not to see whether they'll win, but to see whether they're going to be beaten. And that's what used to happen with Davis from a fans' point of view. You tuned in; it was an event every time he played. Is he going to lose? When is he going to lose? And at one point, you thought. He ain't gonna lose ever. <laughs> he, he enjoyed winning, though, didn't he? I don't know why I'm looking at you, Neil, but uh, but, <laughs> but 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 what was it like playing him in a match where he's like a long way in front and he's just relentlessly yeah. trying to basically crush your spirit? Well, I felt like he was trying to beat you for the next time as well. Like, yeah. you know, if he could beat yeah. you easily this time, the next time he would hate to play him. And Alan was speaking about you know when he played him. My, my my best ever year was my best. I was playing my best snooker the UK final of uh, would have been '86, I think, or '87. I think '86. Um, I'd been played brilliantly all the way through, and I played Steve. And there wasn't actually a lot in the betting. I spoke with Harry Finley, the the, the gambler, recently, and he said Steve was about eight to eleven to beat me. Which, thinking about it, was a ridiculously big price. He, he was only just favourite, but over two days, you know, at the Guildhall in the final, he, he did crush me. The first day I was in it, the second day I wasn't in it, and uh, then I realised I had it all to do to ever beat him again. I mean, I managed to get a couple of wins in the Masters against him, but. For every one, there was a few thrashings that I received. You know. And now, as you, as you said, Alan, he stepped away, and I think it's quite healthy in a way. He's got this this other passion. Uh, apparently, he's releasing an album. Stephen Andrews. So, so they're saying. Although yeah. it didn't seem to be music, from what we heard. But that's every, yeah, each to their own. Noises. But he's content, I guess, which is nice. Absolutely. He's, he's, he's made peace with snooker. He's achieved everything he's achieved, yeah. and now he wants to do something else. I think it's brilliant that, he, that he's doing that. You know, he puts so much of his life. See, when did he win the World Cup? When he won the World Cup, what age was he? 22, 23? 23, I think, yeah. So, uh, he, Neil, did you know him in his teenage years? I wonder what he, where did it come? I wonder where, how, you know, how the standard he got to, where did it come from? Well, I don't know. As I say, I mean, you know, I, as I explained, you know, he wasn't particularly good the first time I saw him, but a few months later he was just fantastic. And he, he had this just sheer determination. And, <coughs> and, and as you rightly say, the cue action, which he managed to discover all on his own. The other guy, I know we're talking about Steve Davis, but John Higgins was like that. He just, from nowhere, he just became a brilliant player almost overnight. And I guess maybe looking back, Steve Davis was along similar lines. He just somehow developed this technique where it was... The poker straight action went through. The head stayed down. The right right leg was straight. Everything was upright and tight. And, and, he, and what he did do, he, he started off a great long potter and scorer. Mm. And then, as you can imagine with Steve, because he's a clever bloke, he changed his game and become highly tactically uh, astute, which he wasn't at the beginning, you know. And in the end, yeah. I mean, you, when you think that he beat John Higgins... Was it 2011, 2010, and the Crucible, whichever year it was? 2010, yeah. Yeah, and he was in his 50s. So, I mean, people who say well, you can't compare eras, well, there's the guy that beat a leading player sure. only a few years ago. And, uh, and he did it because he had a different game by then, you know, and he changed. And he was also Snooker's first and still only BBC Sports Personality of the Year. That's the kind of, you know, echelon he, he, he rose to. And when he won his sixth world title in 1989, at that particular point, he was the greatest player in snooker history where there had any debate whatsoever. Mm. And 
although it's always subjective, you ask for the top five of all time grades now, he has to be included in everybody's top five. Mm. No yeah. ifs, buts, or maybes. And maybe even a bit higher than that. Yeah. Well, he's been included in this, so you know that's something. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to stop. Uh, we've made it through to D, so I think it's fair to say we'll have to. This will be a long-running series, but uh, we will return at some point with E and the rest of it. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.